All right. In keeping with the last song, my sermon will be in Hebrew tonight. <laughs> Just kidding. My Hebrew is actually awful, so I will not subject you to that. Second Samuel 23. Second Samuel 23. The theme of Second Samuel is a heart after God, and we have now come to the end of David's life and his reign. In fact, the last four chapters of Second Samuel, they bring us right up to the end of David's life. And, and they form kind of an, an appendix as they sum up David's reign and, and many of the events that occurred during David's life. And our next chapter, here in chapter 23, it actually brings us to the very end. When we get to chapter 24, it's going to move backwards. We're going to get David's last words before he dies, and then it's going to give us, the chapter's going to give us a summary of the men who accompanied on him on the storied journey of his life. And so, uh, chapter 23 serves as a memorial to Israel's mightiest heroes, their mighty men, uh, during this time in their history. So, chapter 23, we begin in verse 1. It says, now these be the last words of David. David, the son of Jesse, said, and the man who was raised up on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob and the sweet psalmist of Israel said, the spirit of the Lord spoke by me and his word was in my tongue. The God of Israel said, the rock of Israel spoke to me. He that rules over men must be just ruling in the fear of God. We get here this announcement, these are the last words of David, and then it says, David the son of Jesse said. The word there said is not just a word for speech, it means to give an oracle. So this, is, this word is a marker of prophetic discourse. It's announcing a, a word of prophecy from the Lord, that the words that are about to be said, they come with authority because they're not, they don't originate with David, they originate from the Lord. And while prophecy can mean predicting the future, in the Bible, it's mostly speaking of just speaking God's Word, speaking forth what God wants you to say, usually preaching or teaching. And that's what's going on here. David did not often knowingly speak for God. When he was writing his songs, he, he didn't know those were inspired. These were just songs from his heart. Uh, him being honest and pouring out his either worship or complaint in, a, in song form, and the Lord inspiring it to become Israel and oftentimes our hymnal. David, more often, wrote songs. He lived life, and, and then others recorded it, and it found its way into the Scripture. But this was a time that David knew God was speaking through him. I don't know if David spoke these words and then died a few minutes later, or, or if this is just his last official proclamation from God. I lean toward him dying pretty shortly after he's speaking these words, but whether that's the case or not, the words are powerful because, as he says, it's an oracle. They are more than his own. Now, I love how David announces it. It says, David, the son of Jesse, said. Not David, the king. Not even later on when it mentions the sweet, that he's the sweet psalmist of Israel. He just says, David, the son of Jesse. Why is that important? Well, that's the derogatory term people use to describe him. The son of Jesse. The son of Jesse. Because basically, it was saying the son of a nobody. When they would use that phrase, that's what they were saying. He's the son of a nobody. It encourages me that David ends his life being just fine with that title. I'm a son of a nobody, but that's okay. I'm a son of a nobody that God raised to amazing heights. And that's what he says. I'm the son of a nobody, and I'm also the man who was raised up on high. 
I'm the man that God anointed, the God of Jacob anointed, and I'm the sweet psalmist of Israel. Now, that word anointed there, it's that word Mashiach, or our word for Messiah that we use, transliterate into English. There is no the Mashiach here. David's not claiming to be the Messiah. It should read, I'm an anointed one of the God of Jacob. David's not claiming to be the Messiah. But the word Messiah is used for multiple people at different times. It just means a person chosen by God with special authority and function. But oftentimes it will be used to refer to the Messiah as well. David was someone God anointed for a specific task, right? If you read back in 2 Samuel 16, the account where Samuel goes down to David's house, and remember he finds David's father, Jesse, and he says, hey, where are your boys? And the oldest one comes in, and the Lord, you know, Samuel goes, certainly this is the guy, and the Lord goes, not him. And then the next boy comes in, he goes, this has got to be it. The Lord goes, not him. You're looking on the outward appearance. I look on the heart. And it goes through all of Jesse's sons, and the Lord says, none of these guys. And so, Samuel says to Jesse, he goes, you got any more kids? Yeah, I got little guys out with the sheep, though. Bring them in. Well, I'm not leaving until he comes in. And so they bring David in, and the Lord says, this is the guy. Samuel takes the oil and anoints him to be king. I mean, it's, it's funny. This isn't like some public ceremony. It's just in your home. And then Samuel's out. He's like, the job done. See you later, Daniel, or da- David. God anointed David for a specific task. And thus is introduced the first mighty man of Israel in our chapter here. The one that God raised up, the one that God chose for a special task, and the sweet psalmist of Israel. The word sweet, it refers to something that's pleasant sounding, musical, lovely, beautiful. Psalmist, it means the songwriter. It means someone who wrote songs of praise and honor to God. David was a king, of course. He doesn't mention any of that here, but he was well-known as a worshiper. In fact, he's the primary songwriter in Israel's songbook. Now, David was an amazing musician. He had a beautiful voice. It was for that reason that he was summoned to King Saul, right, to ease him and bring him peace when the evil spirit came upon Saul and tormented him. But while that's true, the Psalms indicate that David did not lead the nation in worship. That was not ever his role. He'd write lyrics to songs and music to those lyrics, and, but then he would deliver those songs to other worship leaders who then would lead the nation in singing to God. I think that's fascinating to me because he's the one called the sweet psalmist, not the performers. I say that's fascinating to me because in our culture, we tend to put greater emphasis on the performance of art in our day. We do. Uh, the person that's out front. I mean, like if you ever, I don't know if you've ever been in a band, like you ever, I won't say younger years because sometimes people do it in their older years, but if you've never been in a band before, I pastored a couple Christian bands years back and, and you got the front man, right? Usually the lead singer and everybody else is usually really annoyed with them because they're like, okay, you've said enough, stop, just sing the song. But they're the one that's in the front, Right? They're the one that gets all the attention. Tends to be if you really knocked out the song, they come and tell the singer. We tend to put greater emphasis on the performance of art in our day, whereas the Bible puts greater emphasis on the creators of the art. Why is that? Well, any person with artistic skill can put on a good performance without having praiseworthy character. But someone who worships as they create 
Well, that is truly lovely. That's what makes a person's art sweet, because they do it under the Lord. David was such a person. Are you? Well, why is David giving this message from God? Well, God told him to. Verse 2, the Spirit of the Lord spoke unto me, and His word was in my tongue. We talked about this this morning, but I'd like to reference it again because this is a consistent theme in Scripture. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 19 through 21, Peter, who was there on the Mount of Transfiguration, heard the voice of the Father saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. He goes, that was great. We all have, you all have something better. That was great, but you all have something better. In verse 19 of 2 Peter 1, he says, we have also a more sure word of prophecy, a better thing, a prophetic word that's more sure than just the fact I heard the voice coming out of the cloud of glory. Whereunto you do well that you take heed. Don't need to go looking for new voices from God. You need to just listen to what He said in His Word. Look at that as unto a light that shines in a dark place. And we're to look to God's Word until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts, until Jesus comes back. Now, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. It doesn't originate from inside a man. But instead, it says, the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men, selected, set apart men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Ghost, just like David here. David says, he goes, the Spirit of the Lord spoke to me, spoke through me, and His Word was in my tongue. And so, that's why David spoke, because God had put words on His tongue. The God of Israel said, the rock of Israel spoke to me. Now, this concept, the rock of Israel, is that a common title David used for God. It shows up in his songs quite a bit. Um, it, it means the, the one who protects. It, it, the, it, the rock here refers to like the crags, the caves that were the safe places and the high places that you could hide from an enemy. And so, when he says the God of Israel, the rock of Israel spoke to me, the one who protects his people spoke to me. That's important because if you need protection, the Word of God is where we run. That's where we go. Well, what did God have to say? You know, I, I feel exposed right now in my life, Lord. I feel like I'm not protected. I don't feel safe. All right, well, let's go and see what the Word has to say. Do you know that God's Word is your place of protection, that it's where you find that high cliff that the enemy can't reach because that's where you find the Lord who speaks? Do you run to Him for answers? Well, what did God tell David? We see it at the end of verse 3. He that rules over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. Those words should be stamped above every government building that exists. Seriously. They should be stamped above every government building that exists. Not just, I'm saying, oh, the U.S., we have a Judeo-Christian foundation. No, every government building in the world. It would keep a lot of nonsense from happening. He that rules, it means the one who's governing or in charge. So it's not just a king. It's anyone who's governing or in charge over men. So this applies to all leaders, not just Israel's leaders. Our governing officials, both national and local, should take heed to these words of David, a fellow ruler. He says, he that is in charge, that leads, that governs over men must be just. 
It's a requirement that God has. Every governing authority will answer to God someday whether or not they were just. The word means to be righteous, not guilty, to be innocent. It speaks of character. Character is always way more important to God than platform or policy. Because God can correct a leader's bad platform or bad policies if they have good character. But a proud and righteous leader is going to do whatever he wants. And unfortunately, in our nation, we have had our fill of proud leaders, and look at where we're headed. And he must rule, secondly, not just be just. He must have character. But he must rule in the fear of God. He must govern in the fear of God. What's the fear of God? It means that I love what God loves and I hate what He hates. It's not about what will get me elected again or it's not what will get me that big, huge donation. It's about what God loves, loving that, and what God hates, hating that. But what does God love? Well, John 3.16, for God so loved the world. He loves people. If, you, if you're looking for a good ruler, they better love people. If they don't like people, they're a bad leader period. If they don't love people, they're a bad ruler. They're going to be a bad ruler. Proverbs 15.9 says that God loves it when people do what's right. Let me read the verse to you, Proverbs 15.9. The way of the wicked is an abomination unto the Lord, but he that loves him, but he loves him that follows after righteousness. God loves those that do what's right. Deuteronomy 7.9 says that God loves obedience. 7.9, know therefore that the Lord your God, He is God, the faithful God, which keeps covenant and mercy with them that love Him and keep His commandments to a thousand generations. God loves justice and fairness. In Psalm 37, verse 28, for the Lord loves justice. He does not forsake His saints. In 2 Corinthians 9, 7, it says God loves a cheerful giver. God loves generosity. Well, what does God hate? Well, thankfully, we got all that in one verse. In Proverbs chapter 6, 17 through 19, it says, These six things does the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination to Him. Number one, a proud look. God hates a proud look. Number two, a lying tongue. Number three, hands that shed innocent blood. Number four, I I hope I don't need to explain these to you. If you're saying, well, are you trying to infer something? Yes. Yes, I am. A heart that devises wicked imaginations, wicked plans. Feet that be swift in running to mischief means evil. A false witness that speaks lies. And number seven, he that sows discord among brethren. These are the character traits that make for good government or bad government. Lacking the things God loves and having the things He hates, that's bad government. You're going to get that. If you have character, 
the character traits that God loves, and you hate what He hates, it'll be good government. And tells us in the rest of the verse that it results in something. Down here in 2 Samuel 23, uh, verse 4, and He shall be as the light of the morning when the sun rises, even a morning without clouds, as a tender grass springs out of the earth by clear shining after rain. The word here, grass, just refers to any plant growth, crops, green things. The picture is of an overnight rain followed by a beautiful day where the sunlight causes plants uh, to grow, crops to grow, a time of fruitfulness, a time of blessing. That's what good government brings, by the way. When you have rulers that have character, they love what God loves, they hate what He hates, they're righteous, well, you're going to have blessing, you're going to have fruitfulness. When you don't, you're going to have lack. Now, ultimately, of course, we sang it this morning, light of the morning. We call Jesus light of the morning, you shine forever. Ultimately, this is a picture of the messianic kingdom, of course. For even a good government could never be perfect, right? I sometimes feel, are you Christians? You just want somebody to be perfect. No, no, no. I'm just asking for maybe like one good character trait. These days, my bar is real low. But certainly, all will blossom when Jesus governs in the fear of God. Amen? That's why we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's why Jesus taught us to pray that way. Well, I love verse 5. This is awesome. This is one of the reasons that David's a man after God's own heart. He goes, although my house be not so with God. Isn't that fascinating? I mean, David's on his, he's dying. It's just the end. And what does David do? He's like, man, the, the good ruler does this. Good government looks like this. And he goes, and I've failed to match that standard. I failed to reach that standard. The word there, although, is a marker of sharp contrast. It's like things are moving forward smoothly. God's good. His word is our refuge. And this is what a good ruler does. And all of a sudden, like somebody stops the record. In contrast to the good ruler, in contrast to the messianic kingdom, David, well, he had many character failures. And his nation suffered because of it multiple civil wars because of it. David was not a bad king, but he's being honest with himself and with us here. And what I love, though, is as he reflects on those failures, and he's honest with himself and with us, he speaks of a wonder. Although my house be not so with God, yet he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and sure. Despite David's failures, God made an eternal covenant with him. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 16, when David wanted to build God a house, the Lord says, you're not going to build me a house, but I'm going to build you a house. 2 Samuel 7, 12, and when the, your days be fulfilled and you will sleep with your fathers when you, after you die, I will set up your seed after you, which shall proceed out of your bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commit iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the children of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him like I took it from Saul when I put, whom I put away before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. 
David, when he heard that promise, he's thinking to himself at the end of his life, he goes, I don't qualify for this. And yet, even though I don't, God in his goodness and his mercy and his grace, he has given me this beautiful promise. And so what's cool about David here is he goes, I look at this picture of what it will be like in the messianic kingdom where things are blossoming everywhere because we have a good ruler finally. And he goes, I fall so short of that. My nation's kind of a wreck right now. Put us through two civil wars because of my sin, and things are tenuous even right now. After David dies, there's going to be another problem that comes up. Someone else is going to try to take the throne from the one he appointed. David knows things are shaky right now, but he looks forward knowing that if God said that his kingdom will be forever, well, none of my lineage, a normal human being, can can do that. He's got to be talking about the Messiah. God's going to bring the Messiah from my line. And so this beautiful picture of the Messianic kingdom that he sees here, and he goes, I'm so far from that. He goes, and yet God has promised he's going to make it happen. He says, Lord, you're going to do it ordered in all things and sure. You're going to arrange it all down according to your plan, even though I've done my best job to kind of mess it up. You're going to arrange it all in order according to your plan, and then you're going to make it sure. It means to watch over it, to keep it, to preserve it. What's David saying? I might fail, but God does not. Isn't that a good truth? His plans are perfectly arranged, and he watches over them to make sure they happen. And so, because of that, Israel's first mighty man puts all his eggs in that basket rather than stew in his failures. And so he says at the end of verse 5, for this is all my salvation and all my desire, although he make it not to grow. This, God's promise, his covenant, his faithfulness, his reliability, that's my salvation. That's what's going to get me out of this mess. That's going to make what's going to make this happen. Oh, it's all going to be his work. It's all going to be his rescue. It's not going to be something I built. And so therefore, he says, it's also all my desire. That's the only thing I'm looking for. This is what I want. I want something that God builds, even if he make it not to grow. He says, even if I don't get to see it in my day. The fruitfulness and the blessings of a good government that David did not see in his day. David ended his life seeing war in his family and, and his nation because of his sin. And yet, despite that, he looked to the future God promised, even though it didn't look like there was any way it could happen. I know I mentioned it this morning, but I'll mention it again. You can't change how you approach the past and and all the consequences that came from that, but you can change how you approach the future. You can trust the Lord to be good and to keep His promises as you follow Him from that point forward, because He will. And so, David, at the end of this prophecy, he can say with confidence that even though things are shaky right now, even though I'm about to die and it looks bad, The wicked will not triumph over God's promises to me. Look at verses 6 and 7. But the sons of Belial, the word there means people who waste their lives on wickedness. He says, they shall all of them uh, be as thorns thrust away because they cannot be taken with hands. But the man that shall touch them must be fenced with iron and the staff of a spear, and they shall be utterly burned with fire in the same place. When you, if you're going to grab something that's got thorns on it, you better have some protection. I have a couple of trees in my front yard, and, and, and they're a little, the, the 
little leaves on it can be a little prickly. And so I don't work on them with just my bare hands. Otherwise, I'm going to get a bunch of scratches and scrapes. I put the work gloves on, and that's when I go work on the trees. And so what basically David is saying, these people who waste their lives on wickedness or are plotting to mess up the kingdom even more, he says, instead of experiencing God's gentle hand in their lives, God's going to remove them with the weapons of a warrior and cast them aside to be destroyed. They will not prosper. Now, maybe you're wondering, well, well, what's the difference between a person who wastes their life on wickedness and David? David already admitted he fell short of, of God's standard for a good ruler, good government. Don't both groups have great failures of character? Yes. But one turned to the Lord in repentance and the other kept going the wrong way. That's the difference. Repentance. We learn this all throughout 1 Samuel. But, it, but it's true here, too, in 2 Samuel. Repentance is what made David Israel's first mighty man. That's what made him David, Israel's first mighty man. And is repentance a character trait of your life? It should be. Well, verse 8 now, we get to this long list of the rest of the mighty men of Israel. It says, these be the names, in verse 8, these be the names of the mighty men whom David had. And so after David here, we're going to get a list of 37 other men. It calls them mighty men, which means elite soldiers or mighty heroes. And it says that David had. In other words, David was associated with all these men somehow. Uh, These heroes, these elite soldiers, were part of the 600 men who followed David when he was in exile from Saul. Remember, he went down to the cave of Adullam, and says 400 men came to him, and then later on it says 200 more men came to him. All of these 37 guys, they come from that group of 600 men who've been with David from the very beginning and now to the very end. Now, the writer here, he divides them into three ranks or three classes of heroes. The first rank of heroes were three guys. The second rank were two guys. And then all the other 32 men were in the third ranking of these mighty heroes. And so we get to this first ranking here, and it says, the Tachamite that sat in the seat. That is actually a proper name that they have translated into what his name means. And so it just means uh, Jashobiam, the son of Hakmonai. And it tells us who he was. He was chief among the captains. That means first among the shalish. You say, what's a shalish? Why is that important? Well, a shalish, when high military officials went into war in the, in the war chariots that were used back then, you always had three people in the chariot. You had the driver, you had the important official, And then you had his wingman. You had the guy who was his shield bearer. He would be the one to make sure he was safe from any harm that might come to him on the battlefield. Usually, the person in the chariot would be the bowman, like the official would have a bow or a sword or some other type of weapon to just wreak havoc. But this was the guy who was responsible for keeping him safe to make sure nobody got to him. It was an incredibly honored position. And they would call this warrior, this shield guy, the third man. That's what shalish means, the third man. So when it says here he was captain of the third men, given that Israel wasn't allowed to use chariots, the shalish here just simply means he was captain of the three. So this first rank of these elite heroes of three guys, this guy was at the top. This is the top dog. And so it says about him, this is a really bad translation, it says the same was Adino the Esnite. So what they did was they, they said him that sat in the seat rather than his name, And then they took the next phrase, which explained what he did, and turned it into his name. And this is a problem when you're going from one language to another. Sometimes you miss the boat, and and they, they miss it here. 
But the phrase, you know, the Enzite, it just means he wielded his spear. So this was what made him great. He was a spear-wielding guy, and it tells us what he did. He lift up his spear against 800 whom he slew. Uh, it says at one time, but that me- it means in, in one battle. Now, I'm no military genius, but I know a little bit about how spearmen corps work. A group of spearmen are trained to watch one another's flanks. They, the way that they set up and you go and you attack with them, it's not just some like, rah, you just go in. You're trained to watch the, the people in one another's flanks. It's how the weapon is, it works. It's how the, the battle maneuvers work. And so when you would go out, he, this is the guy, this guy would be in charge of this corps of spearmen. And everyone's goal there would not just be to take on the enemy, but to watch his flank. He was the primary kind of point of the spear, for lack of a better phrase. So, I mean, yeah, this is the guy that's going to probably survive even if you lose a couple people in your, in your core, your group. <laughs> but while that is true that you're trained to watch each other, and particularly the guy who's in the front, the, the arrowhead per se, probability says you're going to lose at least one fight when you have 800 of them in a single battle. Most men wouldn't even dare take on that many soldiers. I would not want to find myself on the battlefield against this dude. This is a guy who, he was, his constitution, you know, was fierce. It didn't matter how tired everybody was in the battlefield, he was looking for another fight. And so in this one battle, he ended up killing 800 of the enemy. There's a lesson there spiritually. Galatians 6.9 exhorts us, and let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. I wonder how many times victory was just one more battle if we just persevered, but we gave up or stopped because we were tired or weary and didn't think we could win. The first of this mighty men of the first rank was Jeshobiam. The second one here is in verse 9, Eliezer, the son of Dodo, the Ahohite. After him was Eliezer, the son of Dodo, the Ahohite, one of the three mighty men with David. When they defied the Philistines that were gathered together to battle, and the men of Israel were gone away. This is so fascinating to me because this is the only place in Scripture we actually get an idea of what else happened at the battle with Goliath that David had. When David went down to fight Goliath, the record in Samuel doesn't mention anybody else being with him. But if you read in 1 Chronicles, it tells us the place where this battle happened, where these three men stood with David. It tells us it happened on the same field where David fought Goliath. So while David did indeed fight Goliath alone, while every other Israeli was hiding from the Philistines and hiding in particular from Goliath, these three men came down as David's attendants. They didn't participate in the fight, but they were brave enough to come out here and stand with David. Now, it's interesting it mentions that when they defied the Philistines. That's That's a nice word. What it actually means is to ridicule or taunt. And we know that's what David did. You know, he said, you come out here with a spear and all this kind of stuff, but I'm going to lift your head off your shoulders with your own sword. They weren't doing any ridicule, and David was the one who was speaking the taunts. But after David killed Goliath, these three men led the charge against the Philistine army. And it tells us that in that battle, Eliezer distinguished himself. Verse 10, 
And he arose and smote the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand clave unto the sword. And the Lord wrought a great victory that day, and the people returned after him only to spoil. In other words, this guy went out, and he's at the front of the fight. When David cuts off Goliath's head and holds it up victoriously, and the Philistines freak out, and they run, these three guys chased after him. Nobody else came with him right away. But these guys, they, they could kill the giant. We could do anything. And they just go off, hauling off. And this guy, he's going, chasing these guys and fighting so long. You ever got a cramp when you're holding something too long? My first move when that happens is to drop whatever I'm holding and to start stretching out the fingers and the muscles. Like, ah, oh, man. But this guy, he keeps, he's fighting so long, his hand cramps up on the sword. He just keeps fighting. I know the movies show people, you like take seven gunshot wounds and they're still doing all their jujitsu and everything and spinning around, taking on 17 people with a toothpick, fighting through all those horrible injuries. But the reality is that when most soldiers who die on the battlefield, it's because they're injured and they can't fight correctly through the pain. It's harder to keep your technique and your training in those moments and you end up being bested especially in a day and age where most of the fighting was melee, it was you were in close combat, close quarters. You know, you might be an excellent swordsman, but if somebody clips your thumb and that pain is so difficult to grip the sword correctly, you're probably going to lose. doesn't matter how many battles you won. Not this guy, though. <laughs> he just kept fighting through the cramp and everything, didn't let go of the sword. And because of that, the Lord wrought a great victory. Well, the third guy, verse 11, after him was Shammah, the son of Agi, the Hararite. This is the third of the first rank of mighty heroes. The Hararite just means he's, the guy, he's from the mountains. A few of these elite heroes on this list were mountain men, and this was one of them. And it says that the Philistines were gathered together into a troop. That's, again, another bad translation. This is a rough chapter because from Hebrew to English, is not, it's not easy. The phrase here means at Lehi. Now, Lehi, if that sounds familiar, that's the place where Samson slew a bunch of Philistines with the jawbone of a, a donkey, right? So these guys, this is a common battleground area, and so the Philistines had moved into this area, it says, where there was a piece of ground full of lentil, or bean, bean fields, basically, bean plants. And when they moved in there, it says the people fled. You now, they, they left their crops, they left their homes and fled. <laughs> Not this guy. Verse 12, but he stood in the midst of the ground, the land where the lentil crops were in the Philistines' camp. He came in right there and put his feet in the ground, and it says he slew the Philistines. He defended it. Defend is a bad translation. Again, it means he wrested it from them. He went on the offense, not the defense. He wasn't holding ground. He was taking ground. And it says that he slew the Philistines, and as a result, again, the Lord wrought a great victory. Now, the Bible doesn't mention this battle. I don't know what battle this is. This is the first mention of a battle on this field besides the one Samson fought. So I don't know when this battle was, but it resulted in God giving Israel a huge victory. And so there's a, a spiritual lesson here too. We're not to go looking for the devil to give him a whooping, but when he moves to take even the smallest plot of ground from us, we cannot flee. We must take our stand in the small things, go on the offensive, because it's those small stands that then result in larger victories. 
Now, these three guys were insanely loyal to David, and that loyalty led them to do something together that was crazy. I don't know who the writer of 2 Samuel was exactly, but I imagine he was sitting down and somebody said, you're going to put this story in, right? I don't know, man. That's kind of a crazy story. You need to put that thing in there because these dudes were nuts. All right. Verse 13. And the three of the thirty chief went down. So these, this group of three guys, uh, Jashobim and Eliezer and Shammah, it says that they went down and came to David in the harvest time unto the cave of Adullam. Now, it says, you say 30, I thought you said it's 37 guys, Pastor. Well, yes, but the Bible sometimes uses rounded numbers or generic numbers because it's a human figure of speech. The Bible was written by real people, not robots, right? You know, when Paul was writing the letter to the Ephesians, he wasn't in his room and all of a sudden he's like, can't control my hand, it's writing. Blessed be, this is great stuff. Wow. He was writing a letter to the Ephesians out of his heart and the Holy Spirit guided him to inspire it. And so the same thing with this guy. He's like, I don't want to have to do math anymore. It's 30. The Bible's not inspired because men didn't use human figures of speech. It's inspired because all of those writings were guided by the Holy Spirit to be true. So he says, you know, these three guys out of the 30, the chief of them, they went down and came to David in the harvest time into the cave of Adullam. And the troop of Philistines pitched in the valley of Rephaim. Rephaim, the valley there, is called the Valley of the Giants. It's west and southwest of Jerusalem. And it says, David was then in a hold, in a mountain or rock fortress, in the cave of Adullam, it tells us. And the garrison of the Philistines was then in Bethlehem. And so here we begin to see the conflict that's going on here. There is debate to whether this happened when David was hiding in the cave of Adullam from Saul or if this refers to when the Philistines invaded after David was first crowned as king. When David first was crowned as king, the Philistines said, aha, let's take this guy out. And so as they go to take this guy out, to take David out, David finds himself in battle very early on uh, in his reign. I don't know which one of those two situations it is, but the situation was the same in both cases, so it doesn't matter. David's hometown of Bethlehem is under Philistine occupation. They're between him and his hometown, and he doesn't know what to do about it. So this grieved David's soul. Look at verse 15. And David longed. It means to have a strong yearning. He was just was so overwhelmed. And he said, oh, that one would give me drink of the water of the well of Bethlehem, which is by the gate. Now, <laughs> David's not wishing that someone would go take on, you know, this huge army of the Philistines just to get him a cup of water from a well. Man, they got really good water there. I wish I could have some. That's not what David's saying. David's saying, I wish things were like they were when I was a kid. And I could just go over to the well, and whoever's man in the well would get me a drink. I wish we were free. I wish my hometown was free. He longs for the day when the Philistines trouble his home no more. But these three guys, but David kind of laments this out loud they look at each other and they're like, why not? You in? I'm in. Let's go kill some Philistines. Now, being a man who's done some really stupid things, who's got boys? I have never, ever sat down with my daughters and said, hey, why'd you do that? And gotten the answer, I don't know. Never. All of my boys 
have done that repeatedly. Why did you do that? I don't know, Dad. What were you thinking? I I don't know, Dad. And to the point now where sometimes I hear it and I just go, all right, let's go. (laughs) There's nothing to be done here. (laughs) And so this is kind of how I imagine how that conversation went. What do you think? I think we'd do it. It's like 3,000 to 3. Yeah, but I'm not going to be lined up for us. Just got to take out a few sentries, get through the guard gate. Yeah, maybe I'll kill like 15, 20 guards, you know, and I'll even get to the well. How far is the well in there? David, where's the well? Yeah. It's, not, it's not that far. What do you think? Yeah, let's go for it. I got nothing better to do tonight. Kind of like that old saying, Redneck's famous last words. Watch this. crazy part is they pulled it off. Verse 16, and the three mighty men, they broke through the host of the Philistines. Again, the Philistines aren't lined up with their whole army against three dudes. They broke through the sentry lines, killed whatever guards were were at the gate to get to the well. And so they drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate, took it, and brought it to David. They fought their way out, brought it to David, safe and sound. But when David realized the risk they had taken, he was ashamed that he was the source of it. It says, when they brought it to David, nevertheless, he would not drink thereof, but he poured it out unto the Lord. And he said, far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Is not this the blood of the men that went in jeopardy for their lives? Therefore, he would not drink it. These things did these three mighty men. Because blood is the life of the soul, the water represented the needless risk of three lives to David. To him, it'd be like drinking blood, which he couldn't do. That's forbidden for Israelites. And so instead, he poured it out as a drink offering to the Lord and thanks for their safe return. Again, I would not want to be on the bad side of these three warriors, some bad dudes. Verse 18, we get now to the second ranking. It says, And Abishai, the brother of Joab, the son of Zariah, was chief among the three. And he lifted up his spear against 300 and slew them and had the name among the three. Um, This is the second group of rankings, and he was actually in charge of all the other 30 guys. Um, Abishai was the most important of this second rank of mighty heroes. He was in charge of all the other men beneath him in this list. And it mentions why. It says that he had a name. His reputation was as large as the three who were in front of him in the first rank. In fact, his reputation was larger because he was David's nephew. Verse 19, was he not most honorable of the three? Therefore, he was their captain. Not their, the three's captain, but the 30's captain. Howbeit, he did not attain to the first three. The second person in this second rank of Israel's heroes is in verse 20. And Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, the son of a valiant man of Kabzil, it's way down south in the, the desert there of Israel. It says that he had done many acts, and now it's going to start listing them. It says he slew two lion-like men of Moab. Now, Benaiah here, he's, he was in charge of David's bodyguard, personal bodyguard, the Cherethites and the Pelethites. I mean, this is the guy that David has to trust probably more than anybody else. This is the guy who's with David wherever he goes. And this guy, it says he slew two lion-like men from Moab. The word lion-like men is one word uh, in Hebrew. It means Ariel. Uh, The Arabs and the Persians in that region call a remarkably brave man, Ariel. 
It means Lion of God. So these two men were celebrated military heroes of Moab, their own elite soldiers who took them out. He also went down and slew a lion in the midst of a pit in a time of snow. Lions don't enter civilized regions unless they're driven by need, and a time of snow would be a time of need. And so this lion had taken up residence in a cistern, and he had to deal with it, and he did. Verse 21, also, he slew an Egyptian, a, a goodly man. Goodly there means a huge, <laughs> it means he was a good size of a guy. You know, he was a, a big guy, massive. First Chronicles lists his height at seven and a half feet. He was a monster of a warrior. But it says the Egyptian had a spear in his hand, and he went down to him with a staff, and he plucked the spear out of the Egyptian's hand and slew him with his own spear. Another bad dude. These things did Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, and he had a name among the three mighty men. So his reputation was like the three men in the first rank, well-known. It made him stand out from the other 32 men alongside Abishai. And so he was more honorable than the 30, but he did not attain to the first three, and David set him over his guard. What's interesting about Benaiah is he was one of the few men who remained in his position during the entirety of David's reign. He was steadfast, faithful, loyal, courageous, resourceful. Sounds like somebody I'd love to sit down and have a conversation with in heaven someday. Well, verse 24 begins this third group, the final ranking of these mighty heroes. And these 32 men here, they're just named. Uh, some of them will have their lineage or their place of origin listed, but none have any details about what made them Israel's mighty heroes. We'll see a few of these names again when we go through First and Second Chronicles. But for now, we're just going to read the list and, and comment quickly on a few that are noteworthy because we're just about out of time. Verse 24, it says, Asahel, the brother of Joab, was one of the 30. We remember him. He was killed in single combat by Abner when he wouldn't stop chasing Abner. He was one of the 30. Elhanan, the son of Dodo of Bethlehem. This was the brother to Eliezer. He was also a hero. Shammah, the Herodite. Elika, the Herodite. Helez, the Paltite. Ira, the son of Ekesh, the Tekoite. Abiezer, the Anathothite. Mebunai, the Hushathite. Zalman the Ahohite, Maharai the Netophathite. These are different just places in the nation of Israel. Heleb the son of Baana, a Netophathite. Ittai the son of Ribai, out of Gibeah of the children of Benjamin. That one caught my attention because Gibeah is Saul's hometown. This is Saul's kin. And yet he was from, with David from the beginning. I often wonder when I read the story of Saul turning against David and, and giving him a bad name and saying he tried to take the kingdom from him and stuff, so much so that that's what the tribe of Benjamin believed for most of David's reign. I said, did nobody have the guts to stand up to him besides Jonathan? Well, apparently this guy did. That he came and joined David means he broke with Saul. Love rejoices in the truth, Right? He loved Saul enough to break from him because of his wicked quest to kill David. Verse 30, Benaiah the Periothonite, it's a different Benaiah. Hidai of the brooks of Gaish. Abai Alban, the Arbathite. Armaveth, the Barhumite. Eliabah, the Shaalbanite. And of the sons of Jason, Jonathan. That's all we get from him, just some guy named Jonathan. It's kind of cool. You can be, you don't know where you came from, don't really know who you are, but you're a bro. You're serving the Lord. You're doing good things. 
Don't need to come from a, a name or a place behind you to serve the Lord, do mighty things. Shammah the Hararite, another one of these mountain men. Ahim, the son of Sharar, the Hararite. Eliphalet, the son of Ahasbi, the son of the Maacathite. That's interesting because Maacah is a Gentile nation. So this guy's a Gentile and one of Israel's mighty heroes. David seemed to be one of the few Israelites who understood that God meant for his people to be a light to the world. Another thing that made him a man after God's heart. Eliam, the son of Ahithophel, the Gileonite. That's Bathsheba's father. David betrayed not just one dear friend, Uriah, but he also betrayed another loyal friend. Harzai, the Carmelite, Parari, the Arbite, Egal, the son of Nathan of Zobah, Bani, the Gadite, Zelek, the Ammonite, again, another Gentile there, Nehari, the Beriothite, armor-bearer to Joab, the son of Zariah. <laughs> There's a part where I'm reading, you know, if you're writing that, you kind of laugh. Like if, like, if you're the dude writing that, you're like, yeah, you're not on the list, Joab, but your armor-bearer is. Fascinating. Doesn't tell us why Joab's missing. But my guess would be it's because many in Israel, like David, viewed Joab as a murderer and not a hero. There's a lesson there, too. The ends never justify the means. Right is right and wrong is wrong. And while Joab was intensely loyal to David, he was more warlord than hero. Verse 38, Ira the Ithrite, Gareb and Ithrite. And lastly, probably one of the saddest entries here, Uriah the Hittite, 30 and 7 in all. Not only is Uriah a hero in Israel and David's friend. He's a Hittite. He's a Gentile. He's a Gentile who'd come to follow the Lord through David's influence, who became David's friend and a mighty hero to the nation of Israel. And David slept with his wife and had him murdered to cover it up. I think it is fitting that David begins our list of Israel's mighty heroes, but states that he had large shortcomings as a ruler. And the last mighty hero in our list is the biggest reason why David didn't think he qualified as a good ruler. He exploited a friend, used a friend, hurt a friend instead of valuing him. He took advantage of a friend's genuine love to try to deceive him and the rest of the nation. And so I would encourage you, if you're a Uriah, keep being faithful even though you've been betrayed. Stay on the right path. Keep being that mighty hero for God. And if you've been a David, repent and start being a true friend. Amen? Let's all stand. Lord, what a cool list. We don't even know. 75% of these guys, much about them. But you did. You knew all the things they did that made them heroes in their nation. and It meant enough to you that you wanted to see them listed out that you knew their name. And so, Lord, we are reminded of the fact that you know our name. You count all the hairs on our head. You see everything, both what's done to us and the things we do for you. And so our desire, Lord, is to be pleasing to you in all that we do, even when we're wronged by others. Lord, if we are leaders, Lord, we want to be good leaders, to govern well in our jobs, in our homes, or 
any other places we find ourselves in a position of responsibility and authority. We want to be like you, Jesus. So please fill us with your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.